1: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The U.S. House of Representatives is scheduled to vote today on a long-awaited $19.1 billion disaster aid package. President Donald Trump openly objects to the bill's inclusion of additional relief for funding for Puerto Rico. And the House of Representatives has stalled the vote because the bill does not include funding for border security. Immigration provisions were removed to help ensure the aid would pass, where it has already through the Senate relief for georgia farmers has been a political football on capitol hill from the devastation of hurricane michael to trade tariffs farmers have faced months of uncertainty so what is the outlook and mindset for georgia's agricultural industry well mark peel is a cotton grower and president of the south central georgia gin company joining us on the line from Berrien county welcome back to the show mark good morning
2: Good morning to you, Virginia.
1: And Jeffrey Harvey is with us. He's director of the Public Policy Department with the Georgia Farm Bureau. Joining us from our Macon studio, Jeffrey, thank you for taking the time.
3: Good morning, Ms. Prescott. Thank you for having me this morning.
1: Well, thanks for being here. Now, Mark, we spoke with you last October just after Hurricane Michael roared through South Georgia. Acres of cotton ready for what looked like a boom harvest were flattened. What's What have the last few months been like for you?
2: Well... Virginia, every time we talk, you know, it just seems like doom and gloom is all I have to report. Um, I'm afraid it's not much better. Once again, it's weather-related. We are facing one of the the toughest droughts I've seen in years. Um, We haven't had significant rainfall since um, sometime in February. And uh, with three months, I don't think we've had any rain, measurable rain. And uh, record heats. I don't think, I can't remember when we've ever had uh, so many consecutive days of 100-plus degree temperatures in the month of May. Month of May is our planting month, and when the peanuts and the cotton go in. And um, right now, a lot of our seed is just, is, uh, is just sitting in dry dirt, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, we're just uh, can't believe it. You know, we went from extreme um, um, rain, you know, following Hurricane Michael, now to extreme drought. And um, it just, um, some of our guys were ba- barely able to negotiate funding for this year, and some of them have carried over some old debt into this current year. And we really, coming off the heels of um, Michael, we really needed everything to fall into place. Yeah. And um, and we are really off to a rough start.
1: Yeah, and as we know, it did not. Now, I believe the deadline for crop insurance is yeah. what, June 10th June So this fifth, week?
2: June the 5th. Oh. Well, goodness. to receive full coverage, And it drops, I believe it drops um, one percentage point right up to June the 15th, and after June the 15th, you have no coverage, you know. So, our guys are really, really involved in a risky business, you know, it's tough, it's tough.
1: I'm I'm curious, you know, you talk to a lot of other farmers, so you're hearing from them that they are also incurring more debt. Jeffrey, I'm wondering what kind of decisions are made for crop insurance and what does it actually insure?
3: Uh, Yes. uh, Most farmers evaluate uh, uh, their crop insurance options and just make sure that they're at least covering their input cost. And uh, crop insurance is obviously it doesn't protect you against situations like Hurricane Michael. But um, many farmers are required to carry it. Uh, Their lending institutions will require them and, and they just make sure that they've got enough coverage to at least cover most of their inputs to get them up and running.
1: All right. So, as Mark mentioned, we needed everything that they could help us with. Can you bring us through what exactly happened to disaster relief funding promised to Georgia's farmers by the president, by the vice president, and other uh, federal officials right after the storm? I know it's a complicated story, but if you could summarize that for us.
3: Yeah, it it is, and it's uh, eight months in the making, and uh, it's it's been very frustrating to watch the process. And uh, we, there's been two or three situations where we thought we were surely going to be able to to ride in on an appropriations bill or uh, a, another measure that that would help get us to the to the finish line. But I, I do think that that. We, we owe a, gra- a debt of gratitude to our Georgia legislature. If if you remember, the governor, a former governor deal called special session on November 13th. And, you know, the state did what it could do to help. And, and many of the farmers that we've talked to, they, they would not be operating this year if it wasn't for some of the assistance that the state provided right mm-hmm. at $275 million. Uh, low interest loans and some income tax credits there to get them up and running. Our delegation in Georgia uh, has has worked tirelessly to keep the conversation alive in Washington. Um, as with many states, the conversation may have moved on after eight months, but our guys, uh, especially down in Southwest Georgia and in the middle part of the state, have continued to stand up and 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 ask for assistance. So. We were happy to see the Senate take action before the memorial recess, and and we are we're, we're uh, excited to see what they're going to do today.
1: Right, uh, Senators Pris- Perdue and Isaacson also really active in advocating for aid. But this is all on top of a brewing trade war with China, characterized by brinksmanship certainly on both sides. How have those that trade war ratcheted up tariffs affected affecting Georgia farmers?
3: it's it's been a uh it's been a, a difficult situation considering you know the the the, the issues with China started last summer uh, we had hurricane michael in October and you know it's it's just been one one bad uh bad issue after another and as mark said coming into a, a rough planning season and a very severe drought right now it's mm. it's been tough and we, we were try to try to remain optimistic but you know, the, the issues with China are, are concerning. We, we feel like they're very, um, it may be a, a long-term dispute that we're, we're dealing with. We are excited we, that the administration, the president recognizes this issue and he recognizes the fact that ag commodities have been hit very hard and uh, has taken action along with Secretary Perdue to, to help uh, through a market facilitation type program that would help those producers who are exporting products into China.
1: The cat now that there is Jeffrey Harvey, director of public policy department with the Georgia Farm Bureau. Also with us is Mark Peel, a cotton grower and president of the South Central Georgia Gin Company. And of course, last week the president announced ten percent tariff on Mexican goods effective this week, uh, so increasing the the stakes. Let's say at the end of May, uh, President Trump, as you just alluded to, announced sixteen billion dollar bailout for farmers who had been hurt by the trade war, and that this follows a similar aid package of $12 billion in aid uh, in summer of 2018. Did farmers in Georgia see any of that financial aid Jeffrey?
3: Yes uh, I mean we were we were scheduled to receive I think right at $47 million for our state most of that going to cotton producers so I, I haven't checked back to find out what the final final tally is on what we've what we've gotten but we're excited that this new program uh, expands on the crops that will be covered, uh, crops like pecans and peanuts that were not covered in the last version of this facilitation program will now be covered, and and uh, you know obviously we'd much rather have free trade and open markets, but in in light of this, uh, many of our folks have stood behind the president and think that this short-term pain will be worth the long-term gain, so to speak. Mm. And, uh, we're, we're hopeful that this will help get us through these tough times. And, you know, once a deal is reached, that we'll all benefit from it going forward.
1: I'm looking at uh, a Department of Agriculture numbers. By November, just under a billion had been paid out to farmers since the first $6 billion pot of money was made available back in September. So a lot of that money hadn't been distributed. Mark, did you see any of that?
2: No, ma'am. You did not? We're still... And we're still hanging on to the promises, you know. That's filtering down to us from our government, you know. Back in March, we were promised, you know, disaster relief money, and it wasn't a question that it it was a done deal. Basically, all I do is clear the Senate. We, it was a done deal. It just, you know, we were told like four to six weeks for it to make it to the to the local FSA offices, and then all they had to do was process the money and send it out to us. And mm. you know, here it is, <laughs> you know, June. And uh we were told we were promised something some decision we made before um before memorial day recess and um I understand someone bought that as well and um this is trump country. let me just say this it's, we backed the president I backed the president myself and and I think to understand i think most of the farmers understand what's going on what you know what the administration is trying to do and and sort of um with the tariffs but i think you know that uh maybe china is targeting the agricultural um industry in the u.s you know the infrastructure as well as all the farming and you know in our neck of the woods we the agricultural industry backed the president and if this is part of their strategy you know to a way to apply pressure to trump uh, it's is working it's working mm. because I got. I mean, right now cotton is sixty-six cent, and that's a direct result of the tariffs. And one strategy we thought maybe maybe we could sell to China indirectly through Mexico, you know. And now, <laughs> now,
1: that, that, now that looks that like that deal is not going to
2: work. We don't know what how Mexico is going to retaliate, you know.
1: Well, well, the President Trump has said American farmers are resilient, and then can they can weather the storm. Mm. Well, what do you think? Well, it doesn't you see,
2: the, I mean, well, I mean, storms we're going to have to weather. I mean, the tariff storm and Michael storm and Irma storm and now the drought. You know, we understand that to a certain extent we're kind of pawns in this, this tariff game. But, you know, it's no game to us, you know. And I'm receiving some negative feedback from some of our growers. And some of them, they were, you know, staunch. Trump supporters, and they are really, really rethinking their position on this. I mean, it's just got down to, um, it's just survival right now. Yeah, what a shift. That's just it, you know.
1: So spring, a number of crops already planted, peanuts, for example, you said in dry ground. Mm -hmm. What, What tools do we have at our disposal to help Georgia farmers through and maintain the value of Georgia grown?
2: Um, if you're speaking to me, I, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know what the answer is.
1: I guess I'm asking that question in general because you know, as you said, we've talked a number of times through the past few months, and it is doom and gloom. Yeah. And, I know, and I hate
2: it. I hate it because it seems like that's, that's all I have to report. But you know, it is what it is. I mean, I would love maybe the next time we talk, it would be you know, things would be different. But I mean, the farmers are that way. I mean, it's just like we can't catch a break, you know. Yeah. <laughs>
1: All right. So one, one possible bright mark for Georgia farmers now, the, the passage of Governor Kemp signed a law permitting the cultivation of industrial hemp, which could be a great crop. What's the reaction from Georgia farmers? Jeffrey, can you answer that for us?
3: yes ma'am um we this is this topic we probably received more phone calls on on this than anything else recently other than obviously disaster assistance but you know farmers are excited about it they you know it's in the news it's everywhere people want to understand you know how it's grown you know what the rules are going to be and you know if if this is a viable crop for us farmers are uh, always looking for that opportunity, you know. What's the what's you know? Show a farmer a market, and he will he will feel that uh, that need. So uh, there's a lot of interest in it. Uh, I think we're on hold right now until uh, USDA approves our our request and rules and regs are written. So I, I don't expect this uh, this crop to go in this year, but but possibly next year. And and you know, if there's processors that. That want to work with farmers on, on producing the crop, then I'm sure we will see some of it um, in, in our state.
1: Yeah, Jeffrey Harvey, Director of Public Policy Department with the Georgia Farm Bureau. I want to thank you for your time.
3: Yes, ma'am. Thank you, and I appreciate you having me this morning.
1: And Mark Peel, just appreciate your honesty and candor. And next time, let's find something really happy to talk about, shall we? Oh,
2: okay. Oh, really.
1: <laughs> Mark Peel, cotton grower and resident, a uh, president rather of the South Central Georgia Gin Company, joined us on the line from Berrien County. Now, stay with us. What happens to boy singers when their voices change? They might quit, but one professor shows choirs how they can continue to incorporate those changing voices. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. Let us know how you think we can help Georgia farmers. You can go to at OST Talk on Twitter. We have a Facebook group, Facebook On Second Thought GPB. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is the Vienna Boys Choir. The Choir is made up of sopranos and altos aged 9 to 14, founded more than 500 years ago. It is one of the best-known boys' choirs in the world. The group is also notable for embracing singers who are going through puberty, a time when many boys quit singing because they have so little control over their changing voices and are subject to singing notes that don't quite fit. Now, the Vienna Boys Choir has organized a team of researchers to equip choral teachers with the information and skills they need to keep adolescent boys actively involved in singing. Georgia State University music professor Patrick Freer is part of that team and joins me now in the studio. Hello, Patrick. Good morning. So did you grow up singing?
4: Uh, Well, for a time. uh, I was an active singer in a rural part of western New York where I grew up, Uh, sang every time. There was music class and then went away to summer camp one year, came back. My voice was doing something unusual. My teacher asked me to stand in the back row of the choir and mouth the words Mm. since I couldn't sing anymore. I'm five feet tall. Standing in the back row was not an option, nor was mouthing the words. My parents did a good thing. They took me to piano lessons, which kept me in music. And then uh, it was many years later that I became interested in what had happened and what we can possibly do about it to assist teachers. So you quit singing? I did.
1: That must have been a big loss.
4: It was because that was what I was good at. And I wasn't good at anything that involved other kids like sports or whatever at the time. So I didn't have a social group. And and the research shows no matter where you are in the world, boys join uh, activities as much for the social activity as for anything else.
1: Mm -hmm. So uh, it's not just a loss of a personal hobby or, or passion.
4: It's a loss of a whole group. It is too. And, and uh, my, my uh, initial entree to teaching when I, uh, in a first year teacher, I was a um, high school teacher with a very large uh, high school population and a very small choir. So I decided to tackle that by starting at community choir. And uh, the first people who came were senior citizen women. Okay, that's fine. Uh, And after a while, I realized that accompanying them were their husbands Mm -hmm. who sat in the back row and didn't sing. And one day I decided to ask why. And every single one of them had been told as a junior high boy not to sing. And so we immediately rethought the mission of the choir and... Brought uh, did voice lessons and music teaching lessons and all of that sort of thing and brought them into the choir. And uh, one of my great joys is to know that many of them are singing, or at least continue to sing when they went to senior citizen homes with their wives, which was important to them. Uh, we need to stop thinking of singing as a one-off kind of experience and something that is acro- that can last across a lifetime in a variety of settings.
1: So we know that boy, vo- boys' voices change when they're going through puberty. Can you explain the mechanics exactly what is
4: happening? Well, um it's a very detailed and and that's kind of the the um, confusion for teachers is how much detail do we need to know and and I think the answer is, Enough to be able to work with the voice. So, you can certainly go into the anatomy and physiology, but basically, uh, there are six stages of the boys changing voice. Uh, Research shows that all boys go through them, and as those stages progress, um, as influenced by hormones and all of that sort of thing, uh, the voice gradually lowers and then gains some different characteristics, such as uh, the high voice notes, which initially were there as a boy, young boy, uh, come back about halfway through as this falsetto thing uh, that, that is the high voice that n- adult men have. Uh, but the reason it's called falsetto is because it feels like you're doing absolutely nothing. So the boys feel like they sometimes can't trust it if they don't have a teacher who knows the process and more importantly, uh, teaches the boys about the process so that they can follow it after after all, it is their voice. And uh, that's where science can help us.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about that process. But you are now a university professor. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you taught middle school and high school. Let's listen to a performance that you conducted. This is a male middle school choir.
4: a wide range
1: of voices there. How, how challenging was it to keep these older, a little bit lower, voiced male students involved?
4: It comes down to the choice of repertoire. Uh, sometimes teachers are afraid to choose repertoire that accommodates all of the boys' uh, stages of voice change because, A, it's going to have more parts. What and Was that
1: like a South African piece or that
4: something? That was, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, and the... Um, and then the repertoire, uh, sometimes we won't have have as many boys on different voice parts depending on where they are in change. So it, it, it we have to sometimes adjust uh, to the boys rather than choose the repertoire and have that sound inside our head of what we, mm, what we mm-hmm. want it to be. We have to think of what's the experience like for the kid. And then does the piece of music allow for the boy to change parts as his voice changes even though we're using the same piece of music?
1: huh. Because we think of the tr- traditional boys choir is this almost mm-hmm, angelic mm-hmm. you know young uh, um, innocent for lack of a better word i think is part of the the way that people think about the repertoire so as you said you know that you have some challenges to keep the boys involved but, but how challenging was it for you as a teacher to incorporate these changing voices of of kids who did continue singing.
4: Well, I'd like to back up to something you just mentioned, which was this conception of what a boy singer is. Uh, And we don't only have that conception. That conception is conveyed to the boys. So when we have, say, a third-grade boy or so who has a wonderful soprano voice, and we say, your voice is wonderful, you have a wonderful voice... What we're doing is we're uh, uniting the voice with the boy rather than saying what the boy can do with that instrument and that the, that those skills will remain. So uh, there, what I'm finding as I now travel the world and talk with boys about the voice change to find out what they've experienced, there's a profound sense of loss for many of these boys who were built up as young boy sopranos with no guidance as to what the transferability of those skills would be later.
1: Yeah, and I wonder if there's also this association with growing up is bad, right? Growing mm-hmm. into a
4: male, uh, you know, a man is is negative. Yeah, we often think that boys want, uniformly, want to be, quote unquote, men. Uh, and that is not necessarily true when you talk to middle school boys. I think we have that conception as older people looking backward, but I don't get always get that sense from the younger boys. Mm-hmm. So it's more um, multifaceted than I think we give it credit for. So, how about your colleagues? What kind of things did you hear in professional circles about why boys stop singing? Well, when I started, uh, it was boys stop singing because they don't like chorus, they don't like re- they don't like school music, they don't like to sing. Well, m- my interviews I've now done interviews with boys in about twenty different countries, uh, uniformly says that's not true. Boys do like to sing. The problem is that they don't like how they're required to sing in choir sometimes, um, and they it's not even so much that they don't like the repertoire, they recognize that the repertoire is what it is and has to accommodate different voices. Um, What they do want to learn is skills they do want to learn vocal technique, and uh, that when they withdraw from singing, they often will go to other activities that take advantage of the boy's growing body and and, uh, new capabilities, and that very often is athletics. Mm -hmm. And so there's the misconception that boys uh, drop out of choir to go to athletics because they like sports better. What they tell me is they like the instruction better, because coaches give specific instruction about how to get better. What to do, what to practice, and tomorrow we come back and I'm going to give you feedback on that. Yeah. And we need more of that That's in what they
1: want. They yep. want that kind of interaction. And
4: I think there's also this association that singing is feminine or unmanly. Uh, boys don't say that. What they do say is that it is the style of teaching that uh, potentially is off-putting uh, and that uh, over time, if remember, boys only know what they know and they only know in their community, in their school. So it really is up to the teacher. That's another thing that the research is showing that, th- that an individual teacher can only control or have influence on what that individual teacher can have influence on. And so it's important to create that worldview in the situation that you're in. Uh, and um, we can't, teachers will often say, oh, oh, boys think, say, singing is feminine or whatever. Um, a, that, whether you think that's a bad thing or not, um, we can't change the world. What we can change is our school, our situation. Patrick Freer is
1: with us. He's a Georgia State University music professor. He's been working with boys' choirs around the world as a part of a team of academics and researchers to try and help boys continue singing even after their voices change. But let's talk more about around the world. You Last year you worked, last fall rather, you worked with the Vienna Boys Choir in Austria. This year you've been to Madrid, Ecuador, Sweden, around the U.S. So how about the differences in cultural attitudes observed between these respective countries and their attitudes towards changing male voices?
4: I get that question all the time. And in fact, that was my question when this all started a few years ago. Um, I would say there's not as much difference as you might think. The differences tend to be very specific. For instance, in Greece, uh, where there is not Music in public schools—the way we have it here—there uh, will be music schools where music is a big portion of the day, along with the other uh, academics. In those um, situations, there's the boys will uniformly say, "Oh, we don't like choir. We don't, you know, whatever." And then, <laughs> but they all sing, and they sing in this thing called Byzantine choir, which is you know, there's not the separation of church and state that there is here. But so Byzantine choir is all melody and a drone, which is one or two notes sung by a man, led by a man, always loud boisterous singing so they don't have to read music so it's a they don't view that as being what how we stereotypically view choral singing um you know in in europe there's an organization of uh, choral directors called europa cantat and they're actually considering changing their name bec- away from this formalized style to group singing in any format which could include what we're talking about here could include other things as well because Because there's now this sense that people sing together as groups for a variety of reasons, only one of which might be the concert performance with which we're most familiar.
1: When you were in Austria, you did work with Gerald Wirth, if I'm saying his name. Wirth. Wirth, Mm -hmm. the conductor of the Vienna Boys Choir, very much responsible for the choir's inclusive approach. What makes his method so successful? Is it technique? Is it uh, how they think about it? Is it sort of the psychology of it?
4: I think it's all of those, and part of this project is to perhaps codify a little bit of that, uh, uh, but it it comes back to this philosophy of who's more important, the repertoire or what is more important, the repertoire or the singers, and he's talked about changing his philosophy away from the choir exists to perform repertoire, toward repertoire uh, exists to serve singers. I uh, experienced this when I was a college student at Westminster Choir College in Princeton, New Jersey, way back when, and at the time, the American Boy Choir was just down the street. And while I was a student, the American Boy Choir director uh, changed his philosophy. So no longer would boys have to leave upon voice change. Instead, they would uh, leave when they uh, turned age 14. So that the choir had to change with the boys, rather than the boys having to leave when their voice started to change, well, and that was a big uh, uh, philosophy uh, advance, I would say.
1: Well, let's listen to a clip of the Vienna Boys Choir. Here they are singing Pharrell's "Happy." Mm-hmm. the repertoire has changed but are there I mean historically higher voices considered so much more valuable than lower the Vienna Boys Choir this stalwart organization that that presented this tradition over and over again so are there traditionalists who feel
4: like why are you doing Pharrell songs Uh, well that's not all they do of course Uh, and certainly uh, I I think there are some, but I would say that perhaps those traditionalists are a little bit limited in what they're talking about. Remember, we're talking here about music education for all boys uh, and singing for all boys. And that there will be uh, different kinds of boys with different kinds of interests and abilities that call for different kinds of musical experiences. Just like in sports, Uh, you have your elite teams that represent the school, but that's just a fraction of the number of boys and girls in that school. Uh, But that doesn't mean that no one else has anything to do with being physical or athletic. It's just that that team only has 12 players.
1: Well, you are working with a range of choirs, you know, from the ultra prestigious Mm -hmm. to those that are passion driven in small schools across the U.S. But with budget cuts at many schools, art programs have disappeared. Can you talk about some of the other challenges music teachers face in today's education landscape?
4: I think... uh, the budget is one, but singing is a good thing because it requires, dare I say, less money than, say, if you were outfitting a band or an orchestra where you have to uh, purchase and maintain instruments. Uh, there, There's that. There's uh, the new focus or awareness of transgender singers uh, and transgender students in general, which then is a new area of focus for many teachers. Uh, that's a challenge. Uh, but I do think that the world has changed in the sense that there's so much... Communication available to everyone uh, that uh, we no longer have the isolation that we used to have. I, I used to hear that from teachers early on in my career that they just felt like no one cared, no one knew what they did and uh, they didn't have resources. Uh, that's changed. Mm. In the U.S., it's not true in most other countries. Uh, we are very fortunate in that we have an education industry that supports us with publications and repertoire and materials and all of that. That's not the case elsewhere.
1: Well, uh, I'm su- such a pleasure speaking with you so interesting. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Georgia State University Professor Patrick Freer. Now just ahead school is out and pools and beaches are open for the summer. We're going to hear from a nonprofit leader who wants everyone to swim safely and she wants those safe swim tips to reach all kids. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought.
2: From Georgia Public Broadcasting,
1: this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Drowning is one of the three top causes of unintentional deaths for people under the age of 29. The CDC reports that African-American children between ages of 5 and 14 are three times as likely to die from drowning than white children. A near-drowning experience led Trish Miller to create Swim Kids. It's a nonprofit that helps kids and their families learn how to swim and be safe in the water. She's speaking at TEDx Atlanta later this week and joins me now
0: in the studio. Trish, welcome. Thank you, Virginia. I'm so glad to be here. Did you swim growing up? I cannot say that I did. I grew up at the oceanfront, though. What? That's that's what makes it so funny, is that I grew up at the oceanfront, we never went to the beach. I never, I've never even seen my mother in a bathing suit. So that should tell you we were not water people whatsoever. Um, so I actually did not experience water until much later in life. Hmm. So no, did so not th- swim.
1: that's interesting. I mean, I've, I've certainly heard a lot of African American comedians making jokes about mm-hmm. you know we didn't swim, we don't, we don't swim. Is mm-hmm. it, so was that a thing in your family?
0: Was that something that you shared with other people of your generation? It's absolutely cultural. It's it's one of those things where uh, historical events really contributed to it. And if you really look at the studies and the data that supports that, Jim Crow and segregation actually had a lot to do with black people having access to pools. So it became a situation of where we just didn't have the knowledge to pass down to our children and it became, it's not for us. And it actually resulted in the numbers that we experience today Mm -hmm. in terms of drowning rates of Mm -hmm. our children.
1: And for you personally, you had a near drowning experience. This was as a teenager, what happened?
0: Yeah, I actually was on spring break with a group of friends. We decided to, to go to a beach, not uncommon. Uh when you're in college and we wanted to go to the swimming pool it was too cold out to get into the to splash around in the ocean so we um, went to the pool and my friends just like most people when you say that you don't know how to swim they're going to teach you it's so easy all you have to do is and they spent just a little bit of time teaching me how to swim uh, teaching me so called the basics and I was 19 and did not know any better and felt they with their encouragement Oh, you're ready. You got it. You're good. And I jumped in the deep end, 12 feet of water, felt like I was fine. And I was fine the first time I came up. Kind of fine the second time I came up. But then when I couldn't stay up, that's when I panicked. I did not learn how to tread water. And I just, I lost it. And so my friends actually had to come and get me because I sank and was drowning. It was the most scariest thing, though that was decades ago, never will forget that feeling mm. and I never wanted my children or anyone else to experience that just because of lack of resources or just really lack of awareness of how important this is for you to learn as a child now you were 19 years old then mm-hmm. did you did you not go in the water for a long time oh it was I took a very long break I took a very <laughs> long break from the water after that uh, I'm still friends with with those uh, group of friends today and we were just talking about it while I was preparing for this talk. And it really wasn't until my mid to late 30s that I jumped back into the water and said, I'm going to conquer this thing and learn how to swim. So it's never too late uh, to learn how to swim. What we've what the data shows us and and certainly what I've, I've learned working in public health is we tend to think about swimming as this recreational thing. So because we feel it's recreational, we don't prioritize it. Especially as the black community, we don't tend to prioritize it. We prioritize sports um, and it is a large generalization that I'm making. But however, on, on a whole, we tend to prioritize sports and other things rather than swimming. We don't we don't see that as something that well we can protect our children from. it. We'll just keep them from the water. And it's a life saving skill that we need to learn and we need to make sure that our children learn young and then as adults we need to make sure that we know because there's a recent movement though of people being more aware of those statistics so they are putting their children into swimming programs maybe once or twice but then they don't know how to swim so if their children ever get into trouble they're not breeding strong swimmers Mm -hmm. so if their children get into trouble in the water they can't save them and so it still becomes an issue of a drowning risk for their families because the full family doesn't have that knowledge and life-saving skill that's needed to protect them.
1: And this is why you started Swim Kids. Tell me tell me how that happened. How yeah. did that evolve that you realized like something you you needed to do?
0: Yeah, thank you so much for asking about that. Swim Kids is a school-based program. It's designed after models in other states, so Minnesota and Virginia, for example, are states that uh, make it a priority for children to learn while they're in the school system. It's a part of the school's curriculum. So it's one. One less thing that parents have to do either in evenings or on the weekends and the children learn those introductory water safety and swimming skills during the school day and then the parents can elect to continue them on and they can then also they those schools typically have access to a pool where the children can continue in camps and things like that so they they not only are introduced they become proficient swimmers mm-hmm. swim kids takes a similar model and similar approach where we work with elementary and middle school students to introduce students to introduce them to introductory lessons, but then we take a holistic approach with the family and allow the family to also be able to take lessons, whether it's on site, at their homes, in their at their, their home pools, um, or at our pools where we actually offer the lessons for the family. Okay, so do a lot of schools in Georgia have pools or access to pools? So... There are tons of pools in Georgia. Um, they just need to be used. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so you mean you're even using like family pools, people's home pools for this kind of thing? Absolutely, absolutely. So our pilot, though, is with a with a middle school that has a pool on site, which is almost unheard of. Um, And we are employing a model where this particular middle school will serve as a hub for the elementary schools that are within its cluster so that we can ensure that at least those elementary schools and students will be introduced to swimming before they get to the middle school program. And then they will continue on once they're at middle school. Okay, so you're talking about working with school systems, individual (laughs) schools, insurance. I mean, how did you do this? So I am Wonder Woman, Virginia. <laughs> did you clearly? Not, did you not recognize that? I no. didn't see the outfit <laughs> under your nice professional sweater. And... <laughs> I'm not doing it alone by any stretch. Um, I I have a great team of certified swimmers that are very familiar with uh, timid young swimmers, children, families. Uh, they uh, are African American trainers, um, and so we've also recognize that typically there's a trust factor that we have to acknowledge and we have to say up front that makes it easier for people to learn how to swim in something that's so scary water is scary for mm-hmm. many people and so you have to be able to trust that person and many times you trust the person that kind of looks like you that's just what we've noticed. So our trainers are certified. They go to these schools. Um, we actually pilot in, in the spring with these two schools. And we will just offer these lessons and hopefully change and turn around this statistic of drowning in the, in our state. Yeah, Let's look at the statistic for da- drowning mm-hmm. in the state. So first of all, overall, 2017,
1: Georgia was fifth in the nation for children drowning Absolutely. in pools. This is the com- Consumer Product Safety Commission came up with those numbers. What is it specific to Georgia you think that makes it so high?
0: Yeah, I, I the only thing that that I can attribute it to is just the lack of awareness. We we just don't have the knowledge and we, we that number is actually second um to well in in terms of child drownings in Georgia, it's second only to Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, which is at an ocean front. So the only thing I can attribute it to is just the lack of awareness and that we need to expose our children young, which is why these school-based programs are so essential to teach them before they get the fear, before um, before those kind of things come up to them, where they just, they they become like a fish. <laughs> they just become very used to that type of environment and they can then influence and change those pictures for their their families, too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the family thing is
1: really interesting to me because, you know, it's a, like you said, you can teach kids yeah. almost anything. But once somebody has been enculturated all their mm-hmm. life to be fearful of water, how mm-hmm. do you how do you get over that hoop? And, you know, there's the embarrassment of I'm an adult and I don't know how to swim. There's
0: all of that, Virginia. You hit it right on the head. What what has been helpful for us is recently there have been celebrities that have come forth saying that they in their 40s are learning how to swim. And they have acknowledged how important it is in that it really is something that you need to learn no matter what age. And especially if you have children, that it's something that you need to prioritize. So dealing with that embarrassment is one thing, but knowing how it affects the drowning rates. is another. You gave some statistics, but one more I want to just really make sure we we hear is that Black middle school students actually drown at a rate ten times that of whites. Oh my goodness! So, so. that's that's your eleven and twelve year olds primarily drown ten times, and and again that has everything to do with awareness and access to pools. It's not cost. Um, cost typically is a factor. But in terms of sports and other things that, that we pay for, swimming lessons pale in in the cost factor. So it really is prioritization and, and awareness. Trish Miller is with me. She's the founder of Swim Kids, which is teaching kids
1: and their families about water safety, trying to make a dent in the pretty dismal statistics about mm-hmm. how many kids drown, as we just heard 11 to 12-year-olds, especially at these ages, blacks drown in swimming pools 10 times the rate of whites. Is it swimming pools primarily where people drown rather than in lakes? I mean, you think if you grow up in the country, maybe... Or, well, you've just, yes, you've up just in the country. <laughs> you just completely countered that, you know. Because for me, you know, it was like a rite of passage. You learn yeah. how to swim when you're a little kid, yeah. Uh, uh, and that obviously didn't happen. I'm you know white woman from New England. We what? had a place by the lake, kind mm-hmm. of thing. So there is, you know, how did so so. Obviously, class, race play into this because I'm also looking for, you know, among uh, Hispanic kids, Mm -hmm. Latinx, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Native Americans, Alaskan natives, twice the rate for whites. I just I
0: this is my own cluelessness. Never Mm -hmm. thought that swimming is just a white thing. Yeah. I mean, it's it really is. I want to add one more dynamic that we don't really talk about um, in terms of black females and them learning how to swim. So there's another obstacle, especially with younger black girls, and that is hair. Oh, right. And we typically have thick curly hair that we don't want to style every day in that way. So in terms of if if it gets wet, it takes time to, to fix it back up. So I've had so many mothers and children that would come to me and say, you know, and I actually experienced it myself. My daughter, who is a great swimmer, wanted to be on her school swim team. It's a great activity for her. But I had to tell her no, because I could not keep up with maintaining her Mm -hmm. hair. Mm -hmm. It was a very real thing that if she got in the pool earlier that day, What was she going to do for the rest of the day? It wasn't a situation where she could just put it in a ponytail or she could just rinse it in the swimming pool or in the shower or something like that. It was a real consideration and the currently designed swimming caps are not designed for the volume of hair that, that thick curly hair typically is nor is it designed to keep the hair dry. And since it doesn't Work to keep the hair dry. It actually prohibits, or is is one of the prohibitors to a lot of Black females, especially getting in the water. Okay, so another aspect of white default (laughs) or white privilege that
1: you know don't think about that
0: kind of thing. So great
1: business opportunity for somebody to do swimming caps for (laughs) for
0: young Black women. Absolutely, and fortunately, I am actually in a fellowship that is supporting. My business in creating and developing that first waterproof swimming cap.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so you talked a little bit about what you're doing inside
1: of schools, mm-hmm. right? Working uh, to pilot the pilot program in Atlanta public schools. Mm-hmm. How have
0: school administrators responded to this? Oh, they have been thrilled. Um, I, they have they have just been absolutely thrilled because they don't have the resources and. Even one of the schools that has a pool on site doesn't have the resource to make sure that the children are actually learning. And as a result, it doesn't get used very much. Mm-hmm. Beautiful Olympic-sized pool that most of the children don't know how to swim, so they're not using it. Not at the rate that you would think that they would. So they're not able to have a very robust swimming program or, or a swim team or, or something like that just because the children don't have the knowledge. So when, when many of most... I've not approached one school that has said, no, this is not a priority for us. The drowning rates speak and you can't deny, um, especially schools that are, are within our, our metro area and our, our inner city area or more urban areas who are predominantly black. We can't deny what those rates are and that we each play an important part in making sure that we change that. And if the way to change that is to introduce them to the water and give them the skills that they need we got to do that. It's, it's very, very common and similar to anything else that we would give our children skills to do. We, we teach them to put their seatbelts on. We teach them to put on pads when they go outside in helmets. We want to protect them. This is one more way we can protect them. So, where do you see this going? Um, You have
1: an MBA, is that correct? I do, and an MPH, and and in public health. Is this Mm -hmm. your? Do you have a day job now, or is this what you're doing? This is it. Swim kids.
0: I also have a day job um, where I work in public health with the CDC Foundation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to save the world and work at the same time. Um, I love this mission. I love this mission, and would love for this to to be something that we can focus on full time. and the more schools that we get involved, the more support that we get from our communities and our leadership, that will be a reality. We have a goal of of reaching next academic year five hundred to a thousand children, and we can't do that without the support. I want them to hear that they need to pay attention and they need to prioritize it. So it's not enough to say, "Oh, poor little black kids." It's we need to prioritize it this is this is a public health crisis that is not something that we see or hear about very often and and even when you were reading those statistics i believe a lot of those were even shocking to you because mm. it's not something that's widely publicized and we tend to think about swimming as something that we do in the summertime so summer comes around and now we want to give our kids lessons well it's kind of too late then so they're already exposed to the water they're exposed to parties and splash parks with their friends really we have to teach them unfortunately in the winter time when it's cold um, that's when we really should be introducing them to water fall and, and winter time to get them ready for the summer. Trish Miller what a pleasure speaking with you
1: thank you so much. Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and the Raven Taylor. Jesse nicewanger is our engineer. Don Smith, our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kylie is Senior Producer. Sarah Shariari is Managing Editor of News for GBB. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jake Troyer. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Virginia Prescott.